Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Segal, and today I'm going to be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Alan Shaw, consulting CFO, special advisor, and board member of several biotech companies. You, my friend, are in for an absolute treat today. I heard Alan on another podcast a few weeks ago and was really appreciative of some of the trends that he shared from the perspective of the biotech community where Alan spends all of his time. So I invited Alan on to be a guest on Molecule to Market and he thankfully accepted my invitation. So Alan today talks about lots of things that are going to be very relevant for your organizations. He starts with some of the bigger picture stuff going on in the industry and some of the biggest challenges that the sector has in terms of drug pricing and reputation, but also not to forget the kind of impact that the space has had on humanity over you know the last hundred years or so. We then go into a bit more detail in terms of what's happening in the biotech market now. And many of you will be aware of the slowdown in the capital markets relating to funding for public biotechs. So Alan lifts the lid on why this is happening and what it's going to mean for the biotech community, particularly those that are in the public space. He talked quite a lot about the need for them to do more with less and, and hunker down and and you know they're in a sensitive kind of cash position. But obviously what that means for the outsourcing space and what that means for the ecosystem there where the majority of us do our work. So that led Alan to talk about that kind of potential domino effect and collateral damage of that kind of capital slowdown, which he gives some great advice as to how CROs and CDMOs and other pharma services can add value during this uh, potentially bumpy ride that these guys have got coming up. He also is able to share some kind of core commonalities between biotechs of all shapes and sizes and what are the big challenges that they face today. So a slightly different episode than usual, but one that I hope will give you a fantastic insight into what's going on in the kind of finance side of things in the biotech market where I know many of you either operate or plan to operate or you know love to have some kind of presence. One final thing that I loved was uh, Alan talks about the the decade of partying <laughs> the biotech spaces have and the hangover it's about to go through which is uh a little bit scary for many of us in some respects, but there are some green shoots, which Alan talks about how you can support companies and add value and ultimately help grow your businesses. For background, Alan is a senior biopharma executive and board member with 20 plus years of international and transactional experience. He is a five time public company CFO, has served on six public boards, which includes the chairing of two audit and two compensation committees. He's currently involved with a portfolio of healthcare activities, including serving as Potage Biotech's chief financial officer. Prior to Alan also served as managing director and life science practice leader for Alvarez and Marcel's healthcare industry group 
he is also was the CFO at Serrano. So amazing experience. As always, thanks so much for listening. We appreciate all your kind comments. Please give us a nice rating on the app store that you use, whether it's Spotify, Apple, or wherever you do. A little five star and a nice comment would go down nicely as we get into the weekend. And it'd be also great if you can share today's episode with some of your colleagues or industry contacts and just, you know, share the love in terms of getting our podcast into other people's ears. Uh, a reminder that Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, which helps companies get noticed in life sciences. Other than that, have yourself a wonderful next 45 minutes or so as you uh, digest all of the learnings from Alan Shaw. Hey, Alan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Ramin. Uh, really great to be here, and thank you for uh, letting me come on. Oh, absolutely, and I'm so grateful you accepted my invite. I heard your soothing tones on another podcast a, a few weeks ago, and you give some fantastic insights into what's going on in the biotech space, and I'm hoping you can share some of that type of insight and, and maybe some more with our listener today. But, but before we get to that point, Alan, let's start at the start. You have an incredibly decorated career in, in the biotech space. And I would love you to just tell our listener a bit about you and your story, how you got into this sector and how you've made your way to, to the various roles that you do today. Uh, th thank you very much for those kind words. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of blushing almost, but uh, thank you. Um, um, you know, in terms of my background and experiences, I, I've certainly spent the plurality of my uh, career in, in biotech, but it, I have certainly have an eclectic background. Not, and, and I guess it all starts with me being a, uh, you know, it started with a foundational experience uh, in, in accounting, and uh, I, I really didn't really want to be an accountant for my whole life. <laughs> I, I think I found that earlier on in, in, in college when I looked around my classroom and I saw who, who was in it and realized that this is maybe like the army, a great place to start. But, uh, you know, I had, fr had further aspirations and, and I, and I, I always was enamored by biotech. I think it was, uh, it's a, it, you know, it's doing good by doing good. I feel every day I wake up and go to work, it's purposeful besides what, why people work, you know, trying to be able to impact patients uh, and, and identify better outcomes and better standards of care is extremely compelling. And it's certainly so, uh, the messages I like to share with my children, my family, uh, as they grow and impart on that on them. You know, in terms of direct experiences it's i've been having an eclectic background uh i've, I've been in telecoms uh, i've been in biotech i've even i've even been in greek shipping uh believe it or not <laughs> um and, and you know before i got into that i was you know i used to work at serono uh, which we at the time was independent in the third largest biotech company in the world and that was based in geneva switzerland so when people ask me about uh, Greek shipping, you know, I like to tongue in cheek tell people I was on my way to Switzerland. I made a wrong turn. <laughs> but but I think what defines, you know, what I've my career path, albeit biotech, telecoms, shipping or, or whatever, you know, I've always tried to be opportunistic uh, and, and, and 
you know, see what, what's available and take advantage of those opportunities when they're there. You know, I, I think there's a combination of being lucky. There's a combination of being smart, but I think you got to be able to recognize opportunities when they present themselves and take risks accordingly. And I think people in general are, are, are a little bit risk adverse. Uh, certainly accountants are by definition. Uh, so, you know, be moving into biotech, I've probably moved into one of the most risky uh domains as they are and it's certainly not for the light of heart and and but it's 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 you know it's it's i enjoy it you know as, as my old boss at serono used to call it he you know and he 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 actually won the america's cup uh while i was at serono so you know he was a very competitive guy and he viewed biotech as a competitive sport um and I think, you know, some of those values transcend and, uh, and, and, and it's dynamic and, and it's really unlocking the uh, hopes and dreams and taking ideas and, and putting them into practice in a very impactful way. You know, the industry itself seems to be the uh, villainized all the time. You know, we had a bright spot during COVID uh, where people actually recognized the impact and the importance of, of biotech, but you know, that, that, that's been a fleeting moment. And, you know, there's, you know, again, people are coming after on, on pricing concerns and, 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 and other, other issues about the industry. There's been a lot of things going on, certainly in, in, in Washington these days that would have negative farmer sentiment. Yet when you take a step back, uh, and, you know, put the uh, respect of the arguments that people have on all, all other sides. So, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about those probably better with the cool, refreshing adult beverages. But um, <laughs> but but when you think about an industry that's had uh, had more of a profound impact on on mankind, you know, it has to be the pharmace- biopharmaceutical industry. You know, when you think about about its impact on humanity, you know, it's. Uh, in terms of saving lives and, and taking diseases that that were once a fatal and making them benign, or even more recently, allowing us to get back to some level of normalcy post the pandemic, um, you know. So I think we could probably, as an industry, use new public relation people uh, to help us. But uh, and and at, certainly when I get into thoughts about drug pricing, which is polarizing, you know, I, I think when you think about the money expended, you know, you can talk about some of the inequ- uh, unequal elements about it. But when you think about that in context of what's being expended uh, on on um, foreign aid on defense, you know, and 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 what and what does that do? You know, I think you come back to that, you know, what what the allocation of resources and what farmers doing is is actually working in many respects. You know, maybe there's ways to talk about how the patients aren't necessarily the ones subsidizing this, you know, maybe something that's not as as regressive economically. But uh, I I think overall, the the model is working. You know, actually, I, I, you know, I used to write write a piece uh, regularly for Life Science Leader magazine. And, and I was actually in, in the UK socializing with the idea about, about drug pricing and how the United States pays more than everyone else. And, and it was interesting because uh, when I talked to folks in the UK, they actually thought that the US system was working really well. Uh, 
And, and it and it really speaks to the fact that they, the U.S. has created a pretty prolific ecosystem, you know, uh, that is working, that it is inspiring innovation. And, you know, I think we just need to figure out how you maintain access uh, on an, an equal basis uh, across, the, you know, mankind. And I think that's something that, that there's a lot more room for improvement in. But I think in terms of the machine that's, that's inspiring, uh, the in, 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 in incredible innovation that, that's coming out, uh, it, it's really daunting. And, and it's, it's something that I, I don't think you really want to tinker with too much. You know, I think one of the comments people said is be careful what you wish for. You know, if you start to take away some of the capitalistic entrepreneurial incentives, you know, you might be stifling the, uh, the, the engine that's actually unlocking all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a great perspective on some bigger picture stuff in the industry. And yeah, the, the capital entrepreneurialism piece at the end there, I think is uh a particular challenge that if people aren't incentivized to innovate, it makes innovation <laughs> much more, much more difficult. And so many follow-up questions, by the way, I've been jotting down lots of notes, Alan, as you've been, been talking, you mentioned something interesting about this being, or, or recently being a fleeting moment for biotech, obviously with respect to COVID and, and I couldn't agree more, you know, I think it was, a time where the pharma and biotech industry really shined, you know, globally and through the supply chain. And it's something I think we should be very proud of. How does, how does the industry build upon that? Because, you know, for some of the challenges, as you mentioned there with say drug pricing, the industry does have a lot of challenges, but I'm curious to kind of get your take on how the industry collectively can leverage the good feeling and the positivity around the response to the pandemic and then build upon that to repair some of the, the reputational damage that's no doubt been de- been done to the sector in the, in the past. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And, you know, I'm not sure if there's really a silver bullet answer that, you know, one answer that addresses all of it. But I, I think there's a there's a perception, right? And and it, whether the perception's right or wrong, you know, perception fundamentally is becomes reality. And I think you know there's been behavior that you can question. You know, I think the annual price increases that companies put on branded products just because they can <laughs> uh, ha- has distorted pricing. Uh, and, and I and, and you know, so I think you know perhaps. But it's been a very significant part of paying for growth, as well as a lot of it is also going towards paying the distribution of drugs right now. And and I think that's something that it's a, it's a big animal and nobody wants to take it on uh, because, you, you know, you don't know what you're going to create when you do that. Um but it's a Byzantine drug distribution, and the drug pricing many times turns into rebates uh, that cuts back. So, you know, when you look at the net increase for the manufacturer, it's not nearly as significant as what the increase implies. And, and, and you know, and you got to ask yourself, is this good business? Is this, you know, basically the patients are paying for the distribution costs, and you got to ask yourself, why are the distribution costs 
so good. You know, I think the money should be going back to the manufacturer and the patient should be paying what they need. What, what's all this in the middle? And, and I, I think if the industry was seen as playing a, a, a role in, in reorganizing or changing that paradigm, I think they'd be seen more as a, a credible uh, actor in 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 in, in making, because I think this all impacts drug access, it impacts drug pricing, and and, and at the end of the day, uh, the Byzantine approaches aren't necessarily translating to necessarily helping the patients or, or making the drugs more cost effective. I, I would in turn saying that if you need to have some sort of rebates, and I think rebates can work if they're channeled in the right way. You know, for instance, one of the biggest issues for drug, uh, for successful outcomes from drugs is actually patient compliance. Uh, and I don't think there's enough work being done there. Maybe again, if the industry was seen as working towards patient compliance, uh, that would be viewed favorably. And my, one of my ideas that I, I, I noodle with is perhaps you can turn the rebates almost into like a loyalty kind of program. Like you work, like we've seen work successfully in so many other different industries. You know, the more you take your drug, you get a bigger discount, right? Uh, and that, that should, should encourage uh, compliance with your drugs, you know, if you're putting money in your bank. So, you know, I, I think there's creative things that can be done. I think right now it's, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Because they did it last year, right? Uh, I mean, that's how we're, 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 we're doing it. Um, and I think there's, I think if we, some, if we could change that, you know, again, there's such a big industry and there's so much money involved with some of these insurance companies and et cetera. I, I think it is easier said than done. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's also uh, it, I think it needs to be done. Uh, because Also, if you're looking at aligning interests uh, in terms of the overall system, you know, certainly what what's done in the UK and in other markets are, 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 are different, particularly when you have nationalized health, because there's one payer and, and that makes it much easier. In the US, it, it's it's completely bifurcated. So uh, our, our health insurance here in the States follows employment. So, you know, you get you change your health insurance as you change your employers, you know, based on latest actuarial information. I've seen that somewhere between three to five years, people generally change their employers. So at a minimum, you're changing your insurance that frequently. And a lot of employers change their insurance carriers on an annual basis as well, uh, based on premiums. So accordingly, when you have and, and I think what where I'm going with that is it kind of causes a, a major differentiation or non-alignment between uh, chronic uh, medicine and chronic uh, medical care versus acute medical care. Because the in the U.S., the system is designed really for uh, acute care. You know, if you have chronic long-term illnesses, you know, creating a, uh, spending money on a successful outcome is not going to necessarily be in the interest of the insurance carrier. So they'd rather kick the can rather than provide the cure. That was very uh, uh, evident, you know, when Gilead came out with Silvaldi and, and Harboni for hepatitis C. You know, you were offering a cure for something. Uh, yet, you know, a lot of times the real costs of medicine 
aren't going to kick in for caring for somebody with hepatitis C until 20 years from now when you need to have a kidney transplant. So why should somebody pay up today for a drug that's $40,000 a year if they can kick the can and let someone else deal with it down the road if it's not going to be their problem? So I, so if you create a, an alignment that creates better alignment, you're going to instead that enforces the system to save money and, and aligns to outcomes, whether they're chronic or, or uh, acute. I, I think you can score points with the public. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, you're right. And uh, it's, it's really good to get your perspective on that as well. I think you bring such a different perspective to, many of our previous guests just because you're in it living it every day and one observation just switching gears slightly Alan I had about you when I was looking back at your career achievements and correct me if I'm wrong but you love M&A right <laughs> and growth when I was going through your kind of backstory the commonalities between all the things you've done in your roles has been been part of fast-growing companies and often with kind of an M&A kind of element to it. Is that a fair observation? Is it, are you addicted to it or am I way off? <laughs> no, I, I think that was a really uh, astute observation. I, I, I do, I do like transactions. Uh, I, I, I like, I like, you know, the hunt, I like the negotiation and then I like, you know, integrating them and creating value. And, and it's funny, you should pull that out. Because we actually uh, announced yesterday at one of my companies, Portage, that we actually acquired a company. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was funny when we when we first started talking just off air and you mentioned it and I was kind of chuckling inside because I knew I had that question. I was like, right, mm -hmm. Alan definitely has a, a love for transactions. And what what is it about them? Is it is it you mentioned the hunt? Is it the you know, is it the getting the, the catch or is it actually that, that kind of post integration piece and how do you synergistically create greater value? Is, do you prefer one over the other or is, is it the kind of whole picture? You know, I, I think if for, for anything to be successful, right, it has to make sense and it has to be work on the back end. And I think, you know, once, once you've identified something that, that, that makes a lot of sense strategically, economically, even operationally, uh, then, then, you know, being able to kind of identify and catch it and get it in the boat, uh, it is a lot of fun. Uh, and there's a lot of moving strings and, and it's certainly different from do, as a private company versus a public company. Um, and in this environment, it's even more interesting as in, bi in the biotech space, given the uh, really the market route right now where fi financing has contracted Rather significantly, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting, right? When the markets were rocking, everyone can look like a rock star. Uh, you know, a high tide lifts all boats. You know, right now the tide, the tide is going out and, and it's causing an incredible amount of dislocation. And that, that can be someone's opportunity uh, while, and while it's someone else's challenge. You know, I think a lot of these things are zero sum. And, and, you know, certainly from our, our vantage point at Portage, which has been approached that, uh, you know, I, I've embraced over the years, is that, you know, these dislocation really lends itself to opportunity. Uh, and as I mentioned, I, I, I do like to be opportunistic. And we were we were and while a lot of people now rightfully are hunkering down, 
we saw this as an opportunity to double down. You know, we had confidence in our access to capital because if as you as you as you grow your business, you need to be able to feed more mouths. And you know, bringing in an asset is one thing. You know, being able to develop it and, and do it with time being the enemy is the other. So you know, we had to line up financing associated with that, and we're able to get in a uh, and solve for that one uh, pretty elegantly as 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 well. So you know, from our perspective, you know, you got to crack eggs to make an omelet. And, you know, we're, we're, we're certainly cracking the eggs. And uh, we thought what we picked up, uh, what we announced yesterday was uh, really a great win-win situation. We picked up some wonderful assets, arguably best in class. We got them incredibly cost effectively. We're able to leverage our, our stock. So we're able to actually get the assets without cash and we just need to develop them now. You know, not so easy, but I think with our insights and the chops of our, 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 our team, you know, and I think the fact that the, the seller was willing to park their assets with us was a real validation to our development chops. Um, and they had other people that they could have uh, picked to. And, you know, anytime you do a deal, you always ask yourself, you know, where's the hole in the donut? And I think in this case, the real hole in the donut was that they just ran out of cash. Like a lot of companies, they got, they were a little flat footed. And we, we were, I guess, if you think about it as a hitchhiker, you know, we, we, we were the right car coming by at the time. <laughs> <laughs> what a great analogy. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And you you touched on something, which was my next question, which is obviously the capital situation in the biotech market. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that in terms of what you are seeing in terms of a bit of a slowdown amongst particularly public biotech in what obviously a lot of our listeners work in the the outsourcing space so you know CROs CDMOs kind of vendors who are reliant on the success of those types of companies actually not necessarily even the success of those companies the development pipeline of those types of companies so I'd love your I suppose helicopter view of what's going on and what's causing some of that kind of angst that you you mentioned previously but also how you envisage that will impact the kind of supply chain and the ecosystem that many of our listeners actually operate within? No, you know, there's, there's a domino effect, right? Uh, there's, there's no getting around it, you know, and it's funny, you know, history has a way of repeating itself. You know, when I was in telecom land, uh, you know, when, when the service providers were being voted off the island, kind of the way companies are getting voted off the island right now, it's almost like a reality show in the capital markets. Um, I, 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 I looked at the valuations of a lot of the manufacturing suppliers and noticed that they were retaining their value. And I, and I thought to myself, well, if we are being an, uh, an endangered species, that should have a collateral impact. And interestingly, it did. <laughs> uh, it took, there was some latency before people found that out. Uh, but it did, it did have consequences. So, you know, for those people who, who work with companies like this, you know, I, I would point out the fact that, you know, it's basically these guys had, uh, you know, their the cash card uh, and they were able to go to the banks whenever they were able to. And now they're, you know, they've basically been told that they're, they, they don't have an ATM card anymore. 
and they have to live with whatever's in their wallets. And, and so people are probably in different parts of, of, of realization as far as that's concerned. I think the mantra has really been for people to really hunker down, to reprioritize uh, their resources and, and not necessarily do as much as they they were doing. I think probably companies had their eyes were a little bit bigger than their uh, bellies. And right now, with cash being arguably the number one metric that, that the Wall Street is looking uh, on public companies is how much, how much cash runway do you have? You know, and, and most people are looking for companies that are, are being viewed as more viable is companies with, you know, 18 months of cash or more. And, uh, and, 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 the, and I think the real eye opener is there's a, over 200 companies right now that are trading at negative enterprise value. That means that they're trading less than their cash balance. So that that's telling people that uh, are companies that investors think that they shouldn't be spending their money on their development. So, you know, so there's a lot of pressure. I mean, I've, I'm even seeing situations where there's companies with cash where in the past they may have merged with another company to do development who are now deciding just to liquidate and distribute the cash to investors. Uh, so that, that's the kind of the market dynamic. So I think you need to be sensitive uh, of your customer's uh, financial position in terms of cash. I think those who are, who are sensitive to folks who have cash sensitivities and think about uh, risk sharing with them in order to help them perhaps do things that they might not otherwise be able to do. Because um, I, I think the mantra for a lot of these and what I'm telling these companies is you got to learn to do more with less. Uh, and, and, you, and just because you could before doesn't mean that you should be doing it today. So I think collaborations are going to be an area that people are focusing on more. And again, I think a lot of the service providers out there, you know, you guys are out there all the time, you know, being able to connect people, you know, working as a connector and providing value and relationships and support will go a long way in terms of really endearing yourselves and, and, and providing real additional value that, that I think, uh, speaks to it because I think a lot of these things are relationship businesses. And I think having empathy for the shoes that these folks stand in, uh, it can be very helpful mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day. Do, do you, are you envisaging this will continue in terms of the, the, the challenging capital situation for, for biotechs or do you see, you know, is it linked to the potential of a recession on the cards? Is it just because we've seen, a hugely hyped market in 2021 and it has to slow down at some point i'm i'm curious to kind of get your crystal ball as to kind of you know <laughs> knowing that who knows what the future holds but it's a very tricky kind of uh i suppose you know ultimately for the the listeners we have it's having confidence in the biotech space is is critical to the survival and growth of the ecosystem that sits within it. Um, so any thoughts on, you know, where the market is at, is at even historically? Because you know, my understanding is the market is still in a pretty good place if you look over a longer space of time. But I think a lot of people are comparing it to 2021, which was a bit of a bumper year from my understanding. 
No, I, I think you're exactly right, right on. You got to look at this through a much wider lens uh, to try to make some sense out of this. And, and you know, I, I think pe- people sometimes have short memories, but we've uh, we've had a wonderful run of like 12 years, uh, 10 years, 11 years, whatever you want to start measuring it, but start around 2011, 2012, um, when things started to come back. And it's been a party. Uh, you know, when you have a party that goes on for over a decade, you know, you got to expect the hangover, no? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, so I think that's a factor. And, uh, and uh, you know, so I think there's micro considerations as well as macro factors that are f- playing in all of this. You know, if I, if my forecasting was spot on, I'd probably be at the racetrack right now. But, um, <laughs> But, I would, but I, I would, I would double down with you because of your opportunistic transactional nature. I'm, uh, I'm with you. I'll put some, I'll put fifty bucks with you, and I think you'll, <laughs> I think my, I think I'll return my money at the very least. So do you, do you, do, do you, are you, you know, would you, in your mind, are we going to see a dip for the next couple of years, and then maybe a recovery? Are we going to see anything? like say 2008, you know, you, you said before the history repeats itself at times, you know, interested to know what you think the next couple of years could look like uh, given the micro and the macro factors that we have to, to deal with. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be bumpy. You know, I think that, you know, I, I think biotech has historically benefited from a low interest rate environment. And, you know, if you looked at where interest rates have been for the last decade, you know, it's no coincidence that, you know, people were taking on more risk and and the industry benefited from that. I think at the beginning, because of the... um, the famine in 2008 and, and the first part of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the decade before, um, we, there was a kind of it stifled the proliferation of company formation. Once, once the shackles got off, you really saw an acceleration of company proliferation uh, in the latter part of the last decade. Um, and, you know, to the point where uh, I've, I've, I've often quipped, uh, that, you know, it was like the boy bands of biotech, uh, them just being paraded out. And when you think about every company that's created, it goes back to what I said earlier, you know, they have costs that have to be funded. And I think when you look at all the companies that have come out and, and all of them, you know, there's no such thing as a fully funded biotech company. You know, I, I generally view that uh, no biotech company has enough money. You know, I think you always got your hand out. <laughs> um, you know, so, so 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 when you think about all those companies that are in circulation and they all have funding needs that have to be funded, you know, there's there's going to be a little bit of a supply and demand. So I I, I think that's going to cause a little bit of a, a pressure on the system. Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in addition to what you've seen is that you know the really the traditional biotech. Uh, financing playbook has become uh, non-operational, you know, and that's, that's reflected when you usually you try to finance your company at, at risk, um, when you re- reduce risk, you know, at, 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 uh, when you turn over cards and, um, and de-risk an asset. And right now, when you look at what's going on in the market, that, 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 that dynamic is not occurring. And that really reflects the fact that institutional sellers right now are looking to reduce their exposure to risk assets, 
predictably, biotech. So every time there's an, a news event, even if it's a positive one, it provides liquidity in the stock, which offers a selling opportunity for people to sell their shares, which often mutes the, the responses. And it also, unfortunately, reduces the cost, uh, increases the cost of capital for companies because they're going to be issuing stock at prices that are a lot more um, um, uh, costly. And what's also happening is not only are the price stock prices down, but now investors are also requiring uh, warrants. So you're really almost making the uh, these 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 low point financings even more diluted for companies. So it's and, and, and you know and so pe- companies have been generally recalcitrant to doing those types of deals, thinking that it's going to be sunny days and it's going to get better. But at the same point, they're running out of cash, and usually when you have less cash, it's usually harder to raise money as opposed to easier. Um, so it's really working, uh, I think, against a lot of these uh, companies to wait. And I think when you try to all go at the same time, I'm just not sure if everyone's going to necessarily succeed. So I think in short, I think that there's going to be a lot of winners and losers. And what we're seeing is, is Darwinism in play. And I think that, you know, because we've had such a go-go period of time, you know, you need to kind of wean off of that. It's kind of akin to, I think, one of the scenes in one of the Godfather movies when they went all went to mattresses and having their the family uh, fights. And I think one of the folks said, you know, every 10 years you need to do one of these things just to clean things up. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned lots of fantastic stuff there that I think is just so insightful for our listeners. And, you know, you talk about, you know, non-operational and reduced risk and one of the things that i could see a lot of biotech companies doing is just reducing their fixed overhead as much as possible so they're not carrying that expense and potentially then that leads them to collaborate more with outsourcing partners whether it be development companies or contract research clinicals manufacturing whatever they can do to outsource it so it's not sitting as a kind of a fixed cost that might be an oversimplified way of looking at this, but I'm curious to know, is that something that you imagine could happen where, although you might have less companies and less development pipelines, say in 18 months time, you may have a even more outsourced situation because no one wants to carry all the overhead, but I might be, I might be completely off, but I'd, I'd love your thoughts on whether you see that happening. No, I, I think you're right on point with that. I, I think a lot of people, I think we, we kid it, uh, you know, Portage, we kid because we're very lean and we run things very virtually. And unlike a lot of the companies that built up these, these, these situations in Cambridge where they have big offices with lots of people and, and, and labs, now everyone's trying to reduce all of that. You know, we, we don't have to do that. And I think people have to start to hunker down. I don't think that, you know, you got to look at your return on your investment. You've got to look at your time horizons in terms of what you're doing and its relevancy. And that relevancy is also important relative to the investment community because, you know, the contract with the investment community is as long as you continue to execute and deliver, they'll continue to finance you. You know, so you got to continue to execute uh, and and otherwise that's not going to continue. So you got to figure out how you're going to execute and deliver things that are relevant to them. Otherwise, they're not going to finance you at the end of the day. So I think going to a leaner model uh, 
uh, is important on, on a lot of levels. One is it reduces your burn rate and, and moving to a variable cost model and, and being able to work with, 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 with folks that, that are, are like-minded, that are aligned, uh, I think is, can be very efficient. I think risk sharing provides further al alignment. And uh, I've always been of the view that the shortest distance between two points is a shortcut. And, and, I, and I think one thing that people don't always take into account in terms of their overhead rates and their, and their burn rates is, it, you know, those are fixed costs. But every time that your project has been delayed, right, and one of the things that are almost certain about any clinical trial that you do, or even manufacturing process, there's going to be challenges and there's going to be delays. Things always generally take longer and, and usually more money as well. And one of the things that it's this, it's a cost that people don't always factor into things, but it's a very real cost is that every month of delay is another month of overhead that's being burnt and you're actually reducing your runway by that. So by minimizing uh, your overhead and being thoughtful, you are actually, you know, uh, really, really uh, helping in the value creation process. Yeah. Well, you heard it here, guys and girls, you know, be collaborative and you know help your biotech clients in terms of speed to market speed to clinical milestones and that will be a bit of a win 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 one thing i was going to ask you about which is a bit of a odd question I'm, uh, and i suspect no one's asked you this before so alan so i would love you to take me on the inside of a biotech firm because you, you've spent a long time in this industry you obviously work on you know a number of boards you know advising you know across different modalities different therapeutic areas different sizes what i'm interested in like are they all quite do they all have similarities are they all different i appreciate each of them has their own culture and feel but you know i i find you know, having worked in this sector for a long time i do find biotech still a bit of a mystery because they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and so for I'm just curious because you have spent so much time in different types. What have what have you found in terms of like you know similarities across all of them, irrespective of size and scale, et cetera? And or are they all completely different? I know you're 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 spot on. You know, as you were saying that, I was actually thinking they do come in all shapes and sizes. Um, I, I think the one common theme for many of them are. Uh, Many of them, some of them, you know, the recent fad where these, where you had mega A round financings, you know, that that's just a kind of a, a recent phenomena. But if you were to generalize, I would say most biotech companies are generally under resourced. Uh, and you got to be creative and learn to do more with less. You know, I, I, I think uh rightfully they spend a lot of the time on, on on the science not focus as much on the um the infrastructure and some of the other business processes you know again it depends the, on, on on where they are in development and its management sophistication you know a lot of companies uh i i would say as a theme besides not being um being under resourced i'd say another general theme is a lot of them are not necessarily as well grounded understanding really the the competitive landscape of their products as well as the commercial landscape of that and i think building off of that you know medical affairs 
is a very important area. And, and I think, again, it, it, it varies, you know, again, on sophistication of the companies and the management, because I think a lot of this comes by the, the, uh, the actors and, and the people, you know, uh, there's, there's A players, B players, C players and, and wannabes. Uh, so, you know, it, a little bit of that will, will dictate the flavor and the culture and the objectivity of an organization, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, what I, what I'd like to see is companies that actually uh, understand what they know and also understand what they don't know and understand the limitations. Where are their blind spots and what are you doing to get those answers and, and really answer really important scientific questions because drug development gets more and more expensive the further that you, you, um, you go out on your studies. So, you know, phase one, preclinical, you know, you want to get your essays right. You want to understand what your biomarkers are and, and, and really understand the questions that you're answering for. You know, a, a, an approach that we've done at Portage that works really well is we talk to a lot of the uh, usual suspects, the uh, folks who would be interested um, for what we're developing. And, you know, what we're doing is very specific. It's in immuno-oncology and we're really looking to exploit the $30 billion uh, checkpoint market, which has been fundamentally commoditized by 14 uh, commercial checkpoints here in the United States alone. Uh, so it's really all gonna be about the combination. And you got folks like Merck who have $20 million of, $20 billion a year of that $30 billion market. So they have everything to lose. And then you've got new entrants in there like the GSKs and the Regenerons who want to buy into this market and have everything to gain. So, you know, we, we, we understand what they're looking for and we design our, our studies to really answer these very important questions. You know, I think certainly in IO, randomized data is becoming really important. I mean, I think some of the recent disappointments that we've seen have been based on um, um, theses and perceptions based on, uh, on, on, on non-randomized data. So, you know, we're trying to address those, those things. Um, but I, I'd say long, long and, and, and short of it is that, you know, it, it's different from each of the companies, but uh, I, I think at the end of the day, people, my, my suggestion is that they got to look at things objectively as opposed to where I, I've seen as well, where people will just continue developing things, even in the face of a pretty compelling scientific information that suggests that they should give it up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, and honestly, Alan, I think I could ask you questions all day, but I know we're going to run out of time soon. So my, my final question was, when when we met in the pre-call a, a few weeks ago, Alan, and I really enjoyed our conversation together, you, you said to me, you talked about some of the success stories that you've seen in biotech and you said that these management teams know what good know what good looks like and ask killer questions um i wasn't recording you i just i just wrote it down because <laughs> it really resonated <laughs> with me i would love you to talk to our listeners a little bit about that because i think it's a, a from from what i understood from what you said i think it's a fantastic lesson in business generally and i don't think it's specific just to the biotech kind of the area of the market that we're talking about today but obviously it is important for for the the world that you live in so if you can elaborate on what what those mean to you and and 
to give our listeners some context of why you used those particular phrases. Uh, no, cer- certainly they're, 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 they're good phrases there. And then, and, uh, I think they're kind of rules to operate with. Um, you know, if you don't know what good looks like, it's hard to kind of replicate that. And, you know, having worked at large organizations, I certainly know what, uh, what, medical affairs looks like and, and, and what's required there to engage with, with the different um, therapeutic uh, leaders in their areas and to engage them. Uh, it's, you know, it manifests itself on, on your ability to recruit patients. You know, I think a lot of people fail to appreciate that, you know, your accrual rate in your study speaks a long way to how excited the medical and scientific community are with your programs. If you're not accruing, you know, no one's interested in them and it's not relevant. And, you know, that's important to understand. Um, so, you know, I think, I think being able to see, uh, you know, it's like a mentor, I guess, right? If you have a good mentor, you know, they can help you and instruct you and, and people kind of model themselves after them in certain ways. And I think, you know, it can, you know, from your past work experiences, you know, again, people work in different organizations. And I think you're, what you take away from these organizations allow you to know what, what you like and what you don't like. And I think it's important also to know what bad looks like too. <laughs> <laughs> totally true. And t- let's talk about killer questions because I love that phrase. I stole it from you when you said it before. And I think the context was you said, you know, the, some of the kind of AT management teams you say ask the killer questions that really, really matter. Is that my, is my understanding correct? Is, is that how you kind of talk about them? Yeah, I, I think you want to be able to, you know, run killer, run the killer experiments. You want to understand what are the questions that have to be answered by those experiments so that you don't waste time. You know, time is the biggest enemy in this space. And we don't have time. I pointed out the overhead that you burn if you take too much time. There's competitive considerations that someone else can get to you. You know, there's there's issues that, you know, you're, the modality you're developing will be trumped by the next best modality. So, you know, we, we have to move quickly and, and make and we make decisions that have long term implications. So you got to be able to pivot. So you need to bottom things out before you start these journeys. Uh, and I think a lot of times people forget about those important questions. They want to get the uh, experiments running. You know, again, I, I point out the fact companies are sometimes under-resourced, so they don't necessarily do all the enabling studies now, figuring they can come back and do them later. So things go into the clinic that are not necessarily as optimized as they could be, or the dosaging may not be as optimized. So ultimately, you could be bringing things in, and you might you might get wrong answers. That shouldn't be wrong answers. You're wasting more money. Um, so, you know, you do want to be able to kind of bottom out, you know, what you're doing before you go too far down the road. And, and know, I have to, I have to apologize because you did, you sorry, you said killer experiments, sorry, not killer questions. So I think that's a, that's a great. <laughs> that's a great phrase i'm stealing killer questions as well even though you didn't you might not have said that but the the killer experiments 
piece as in do those important steps as you go into clinic and and I think for many of our listeners Alan that's where I think say really deep scientific vendors can add great value to biotechs which is guys don't you don't have to do all of this stuff before understanding or doing x y and z killer experiments I, I genuinely believe that the outsourcing space can be very proactive in in supporting the biotech community and actually helping them get the right methodologies in place to to avoid them wasting money um which you know is a tricky one because you obviously want to make as much revenue as you can but actually it's often the right thing to do so yeah so apologies i may have got the uh the phrase wrong but i think i understand it and no, I'll, I'll help you out. I think, you know, the, the killer experiments have to answer killer questions, right? <laughs> Thank you. What a, what a guy. See that he saves me, Alan. That's, uh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're right. I think, you know, the, uh, the folks that work with lots of different companies get to see a lot of different things. So they're, they're probably in the catbird seat to see, you know, what's, what, what's best in class and what's worst in class and provide some, you know, real value objected uh, advice. You know, it's like, you know, if you can avoid somebody from making a mistake, you know, you're helping a lot of saving them a lot of time. And on the other, the other way of looking at it, as a, as a friend of mine once put it, if you make a wrong turn and you keep going down the road, it's still a wrong turn. Yeah, very true. Alan, what an absolute pleasure to have you on today's show you have been a, an absolutely terrific guest so thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights on on molecule to market uh, thank you so much it's really been a wonderful pleasure i've had a lot of fun with this and uh to be continued yeah absolutely and i was just about to say alan let us you know Give our listener, you know, how do they reach out to you? Because, you know, we have uh, people that are no doubt want to connect with you and, and you know, say hi on whatever social channel or email address. Is there a best place to, to reach out to you? Or I know you write for different publications as well. So where, they, where can they get your kind of latest uh, kind of views? I, I think a good place to find me is on LinkedIn. Uh, you can certainly find me there. I'm on Twitter as well. So uh, either one of those platforms are probably the, the best way to find me. But uh, LinkedIn, uh, uh, I, you can run, but you can't hide. So uh, I'll be there. <laughs> Alan, honestly, I'm so, I'm so grateful for your time because I know you're a busy guy and you have lots of, you know, you did, you did a deal just yesterday and you still made time for, for us and our listeners today. So I'm, uh, thank you so much for doing that. And I would love to maybe get you back on on the show in maybe six months time or so and, and and catch up on what's happening in the market and i'd certainly point our listeners to the business of biotech podcast which is where i um discovered alan's kind of insights and and invited him on that's a great podcast which kind of gives perspective from the biotech sector and what's going on in that market so for our listeners you know that's the insight of some of your clients so i certainly recommend matt uh, who's a fantastic host on that podcast to listen to that so alan i will leave you to get on with your day and um, thank you very much for coming on to molecules and market uh, thanks thanks again it's been fun uh Take care. It's been great.
Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.